are listening to Casual Wednesdays with Doom Rocket, your one-stop shop for comics talk and such. I'm Jared Jones. I am MJ Kramer. This week, holy flashback MJ, <laughs> Robin's just all over the place these days it seems, so to mark the release of Robin and Batman and DC's much ballyhooed Robin's number one, we thought it would be fun to crack a Robin story that anybody could set their bat watches to. Robin, year one. Yeah. How does Dick Grayson's definitive origin story stack up today? Holy, holy, why don't you just keep on listening, by God. <laughs> it's hard to keep coming up with good holy jokes, MJ. Holy moly. Holy moly. Anyway, also this week, DC's got a new Shazam, but it's an old familiar face. Spider-Man's latest goblin has a lot more boobs than you might think. Well, like six of them? Uh, well, that's what everybody's got. Let's speak for yourself, MJ. <laughs> and Frank Miller's getting into the YA game with a new take on the Carrie Kelly Robin. There's Robin again, MJ. Oh. Oh, no. We can't escape that red-breasted terror if we tried. And speaking of red-breasted terrors, you are currently <laughs> listening to Casual Wednesdays. This was the first draft. I, I see. Of the intro. I didn't really finesse it. <laughs> Hello, everyone. Welcome back. It's Casual Wednesdays. Jared and MJ here. It's been a minute. It has. A couple weeks off. It's going to get rockier with the holiday season looming, casual Wednesday listeners. So please have patience with us as we enter into the new year. Yeah. Both of us busy with our day jobs. Just going to happen. Sorry. I'm writing for new outlets. You are. I'm doing all this stuff now, and it's eating up my time, and it eats up my energy to put together a podcast every single week. But we like to do it still. It's still fun. Yeah. Yeah. It's our it's our hobby. It is our hobby. Yeah. Well, one of many hobbies. <laughs> yeah, that's true. What does that say about us? Like, when we go to parties, would we say we have a podcast? It Yeah, it comes up when you're just talking to people. Or would we just lump it all in with, we collect comics? We're huge nerds, is, yes. is the overall that's umbrella it. for it. Yep, there you go. All right, well, this week we are talking about Robin, year one. Yeah. We're very excited to get into that, but before we do, MJ, I just wanted to give our listeners a reminder to leave a five-star review over on Apple Podcasts. Helps us out quite a bit. Makes it easier for other people to find us. Mm -hmm. And if you're in the holiday spirit, this is the Christmas gift we always wanted. <laughs> right? Yeah. Anyway. Also, shoot us a question. We love questions. Mm -hmm. Info at doomrocket.com. That's I-N-F-O at doomrocket.com. Or at Cash Weds Podcast on Twitter. You got questions for us? We might have answers. We do tend to ramble. Again, that address. Info at doomrocket.com. At Cash Weds Podcast on Twitter. All right, MJ. That's out of the way. Mm -hmm. Time for some news? Time for some news. That's right. So, it's been a minute since we've checked in on our beloved comic book industry. Quite a bit has happened. We missed talking about the Image staffers trying to form a union mm -hmm. in Image Comics' lack of a response so far. Yeah. Todd McFarlane's making an NFT, though. Yes, he is. They made time to announce that. Yeah. Yeah, that's funny. That's funny. That's a big topic, though. Not really stuff that we talk about on Casual Wednesdays anyway, is it? We do tend to keep it light. We do tend to keep it light, but we'll just say we stand in solidarity with anybody who attempts to form a union in the comic book industry. It's a long time coming. We are pro-unionization We do in live this in household. Chicago. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Also, there was a big ransomware attack on Diamond Comics last week. Yeah, we didn't talk about that. Yeah. Did they pay that ransom, or did they get it figured out? Did the FBI get involved? What I happened? I mean, it seems to be mostly figured out. A lot of comic shops had their book deliveries delayed. Yeah. A lot of shops got the receiving of their invoices delayed, not necessarily their comics delayed. Oh, how um, terrible. Well, it can sometimes <laughs> screw up uh, other scheduling of things when you don't know which books you're getting in. Right. But it seems to kind of be mostly worked out at this point, but yeah. 
<laughs> but do you know what happened? Did they end up paying the ransom or did the FBI find out who did it? What happened? I love they said they had to involve the authorities because it was a ransomware attack. Right. I don't think they're going to be giving out that much detail on that sort of thing to us. Yeah, this is a rough moment for an already vulnerable diamond distribution. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Not fun for anyone. Mm-hmm. The direct market is under attack, MJ, <laughs> by beleaguered Russian hackers at the whims of Vladimir Putin. Not to get political or nothing on the podcast, MJ. So, MJ, let's let's talk about some recent news, yes. more recent stuff, more our lane yes, news. Yes, our, our forte. Yeah, yeah. We're not clever. I mean, you're pretty clever. We like to sound clever sometimes. That's true. What I'm trying to say is I'm not nearly smart enough to dissemble news like unions and comics industries and things like that. Mm-hmm. All right, MJ, let's talk about some DC news really quick. Really exciting news, actually. Yeah. So, we're getting a new Shazam. Mm-hmm. A new Shazam series. A new Shazam series, but a new Shazam. Uh Uh-huh. Also known as Captain Marvel. Some people have a really tough time letting that go. I'm one of those people. Mm -hmm. Just by default, I go, oh, Captain Marvel. That's not Captain Marvel anymore. A new Shazam, but it's an old face, an old recognizable face. MJ, will you tell the folks at home who DC has planned to step into the role of Shazam? It's Miss Mary Marvel. It's very exciting. This is going to be the first time she's had her own series since, like, before DC got the rights from Fawcett. Really? <laughs> yeah. Wow. Yeah. It's going to be a four-issue mini, so it's okay. not like it's an ongoing or something. And it's going to be written by one of the writers from Netflix's She-Ra series, mm. Josie Campbell. I guess she was the head writer. And then the art's going to be by one of our faves, yep. one Mr. Doc Shaner. Why do you suppose Mary Marvel's getting her day in the sun finally at last now? I don't know, but I find it very delightful that both of the Captain Marvels are now going to be girls. It's true. <laughs> it's very true. What's going to happen to Billy Batson, MJ? I don't know. That's interesting. Perhaps this miniseries will tell us. Now, if Jeff Johns were writing this, you know, one, it wouldn't be his idea to put Mary Marvel in Captain Marvel's shoes. But also, if it was, he'd probably have Billy get chewed up by a dinosaur <laughs> or something equally horrific, just something no. awful. No. Like Dr. Savannah took Venom. Like Bane's steroid juice and then ripped Billy's arms off or something like that. That's like a Jeff Johns thing, right? I don't know, but we're talking about Venom and Captain Marvel's. What publisher are we talking about here? It's very confusing sometimes. (laughs) So anyway, do we have any other information concerning the Mary Marvel Shazam era? When does it begin? Well, it starts on February 8th of next year. And like I said, it is a four issue mini. It'll be done in no time and with a trade paperback out soon after, I'm sure. Timed, I presume, with the upcoming Captain Marvel uh, Shazam movie that's coming out by DC Films. <laughs> that was a good I re- catch. <laughs> I can't, I have a tough time letting that go. Yeah. I still call Captain Marvel Captain Marvel. Well, it's like a visual association. You see that lightning bolt and I, like me, you're just like, oh, Captain Marvel. I, and you just correct yourself. You do. You know. It's way too confusing. <laughs> way too confusing. So anyway, that's very exciting stuff. Well, MJ, let's pivot over to Marvel really quick uh-huh. before going back to DC, uh-huh. which will segue into our topic of the week. That's how we design these things. Mm-hmm. We're very clever. Good little zigzags. Good little zigzags. Marvel's Amazing Spider-Man. You know, I read the Bay issue, the Dot Bay issue that we made fun of. There was no Beyonce in that issue. Well, I didn't presume that there was going to be, but there was the Daughters of the Dragon, MJ. There was. Misty Knight and Colleen Wing. Like a couple of montages of them fighting in a haunted mansion that they designed. Like they programmed like a danger room kind of thing. Yep. And then that was it. And it cost five bucks. Yeah. I was really upset because while it is cool to see the Daughters of the Dragon, always cool to see them. Mm -hmm. Really pointless issue. Yeah, 
it seemed very superfluous. I mean, I'm, that's why it was a dot bay issue and not one of the actual issues, I guess. Why does it cost $5, MJ? That's an excellent question I don't know the answer for. Mm, I think you do know the answer for that, MJ. I'll, well, greed with a capital yeah, G. Rubbing my yes. fingers together very yeah. close to the microphone. Yeah. Well, anyway, Amazing Spider-Man, the new initiative is called Beyond. We've been following it. MJ and I are keeping up with Amazing Spider-Man for the first time in a long time. Yeah, yeah. Enjoying it for the most part. There's a lot of empty space in there. Mm -hmm. Not a whole lot going on. But a recent development that just got announced this week from Marvel, there's going to be a new Goblin. So there is. I mean, this will be like the seventh Goblin. I, I don't know. Are you keeping count? Well, let's do the count really quick. There was Norman Osborn twice because he was the Green Goblin and the Red Goblin. Uh-huh. Then there was Harry Osborn. Uh-huh. Then there was the Hopgoblin, who was Ned Leeds, and also another guy, so that technically that's two okay. right there. But then that new clone of Harry was a goblin, right? I don't think Kindred was technically a goblin. Okay. Right. But there was the Demogoblin okay. from the Maximum Carnage days. Okay. So that's six. And now this one will make seven, unless I'm leaving out a couple. I'm sure we will be informed if we are. Yeah. When we get things wrong, we get emails. Yeah. Yeah. Of that, you can be sure. So Amazing Spider-Man is, in fact, getting a new Goblin MJ, mm -hmm. the seventh by our count. Mm -hmm. And it's not going to be Green, Red, Hob, or Demo. It's going to be Queen Goblin. Yep. Queen Goblin, which yep. rhymes with Green Goblin. Yep. And you know when they had that writer Summit to plan out the Beyond Initiative, somebody came up with that. Somebody said, yes. Pointed at them and said, yes. And because it's the, hilarious? And then the whole table gave each other a round of high fives. Because it's hilarious. went out to lunch. And I... <laughs> And I didn't realize that at some point recently, Norman Osborn had started going by Goblin King. Yeah, I don't know. I, I didn't catch that either. Um, there is only one Goblin King, and he's played by David Bowie. You got a point. So Queen Goblin, who was designed by Patrick Gleason. It's a really cool costume, by the way. She looks pretty cool. Art Adams did a cover to release the look for Marvel. It's also a cover for her upcoming debut. Really cool stuff. Yeah. She's got this weird bow staff mace thing going on with pumpkin heads on fire. Goblins are insane people, MJ. <laughs> so anyway, the Queen Goblin will make her debut on February 2nd. That's Amazing Spider-Man number 88. And she's going to be appearing three times in February mm -hmm. throughout those three ASM issues. We know that she'll be in the book at least until ASM number 90. Mm -hmm. So yeah, that's pretty exciting stuff. They haven't said who she's going to be yet, so that's going to be a mystery to be resolved later. Well, Ben Riley's got a girlfriend. She's living with him in that Beyond Tower. Janine. Janine, that's right. And she's kind of stuck up there. The security in that building is like really tough because it's the Beyond Corporation. They're shady people. Mm -hmm. We can at least guess that the Queen Goblin will have some tie to the Beyond Corporation of that, you can be sure. Assumedly, yeah. Spider-Man news, MJ. Look at us. How do you like it? <laughs> yep. We're talking about Spider-Man on the podcast regularly. Yep, but we're going back to DC now, because we always do. Because we need to come up with a segue to the topic of the week. Of course. Which means we're coming back to DC and talking about another Robin book, mm -hmm. written by Frank Miller. Uh-huh. Frank Miller created Carrie Kelly. So he did. And has not written Carrie Kelly in a book since Dark Knight, The Golden Child. Ah, so Carrie Kelly is a character that's near and dear to Frank Miller's heart. Mm -hmm. So it makes sense that Frank Miller and DC, who like to work together, mm -hmm. would gin up another Carrie Kelly story. Yeah. But it doesn't look like it's going to take place necessarily in the Dark Knight universe, MJ. Yeah. They haven't been really forthcoming about that yet. It'd be surprising if they did because this new book, written by Frank Miller and illustrated by Ben Caldwell. Yeah, that's the cool part. Is a YA book. Uh-huh. Young adult. Mm -hmm. Written by Frank Miller. Yeah. 
and they announced this like a couple years ago and we've had like no news on it until now but apparently ben caldwell has just been busting his butt on this because he has over 200 pages done for it wow and they only announced it to be a 200 page graphic novel to start with (laughs) we got a quote from newsarama frank miller says quote the Carrie Kelly book is shaping up great. Ben is just a powder keg of talent. It'd probably be out now, but it just keeps growing due to his enthusiasm and output. I'm already kind of tugging at his sleeve about doing something else after this, end quote. Huh. I think Ben Caldwell's a good fit for Frank Miller. Yeah, kind of soften those uh, rough edges. <laughs> yeah, definitely. <laughs> DC released some character sheets from Caldwell. They're available online. You can look them up. They look fabulous. I love Ben Caldwell. It's such a treat to see his stuff. He rarely, if ever, does interior work, and now we know why he's been working on this for the last five years. Yeah. We don't have a title for this just yet, nor do we have a release date. Yeah. But what we do have is cautious enthusiasm, Mm -hmm. because a Frank Miller story can go one of two ways these days. (laughs) It can go into the bloated, meandering, pretentious route, like the Master Race, Mm -hmm. or... It can be surprisingly topical and on point and kind of poignant in its own way, like Dark Knight, The Golden Child, which I did not see coming. It was actually a really good issue. And it leaned into Miller's absurdist traits, Hmm. which I was really surprised about because usually, you know, DC likes to get all grandiose with the Dark Knight stuff. And this one was just full on. It was practically a cracked comic. (laughs) You read The Golden Child, didn't you? I didn't. Oh, it's so good. I looked at the art because Raphael Grandpa. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's really good stuff. So anyway, we will report more on this Frank Miller, Ben Caldwell, YA title as news develops. But in the meantime, Robin, MJ. Yeah. You can't escape Robin. I feel like the Robins are kind of having a renaissance right now, MJ. Yeah? Like right now, this moment. Well, I feel like they've never gone away. That's probably true. Yeah. (laughs) But in the last couple of weeks, we've gotten two new Robin-centric debuts. True. We got Robin and Batman number one. Mm Mm-hmm. Written by Jeff Lemire, art by Dustin Nguyen. Which you got to do a really great review for on Polygon. It was my first write-up for Polygon, it's true. Yeah. Thank you for mentioning that. (laughs) But we also, this week, got a new debut spun out of the Round Robin contest that was a fucking calamity on Twitter (laughs) that DC put together. And Robins won, but it became very, very hostile, that whole thing. Yeah, it was was a a weird scene. Yeah, it was a bad idea to begin with, but it was a really bad idea considering the projects that were being put in contest with each other. But anyway, Robbins, number one, is out this week. Mm-hmm. Written by Tim Seeley. And who did the art on this, MJ? Baltimore Rivas, with colors by Romulo Ferrero Jr. and letters by Steve Wan. That's right. Now, we both read Robbins number one this week mm-hmm. with the full intention of doing a quick review for the back matter of this episode, but um, I didn't like it at all. And I don't really want to trash a book on the podcast. I didn't hate it, but I didn't love it. I mean, I thought it was a fun, okay read, but I I would rather be talking about something that we really liked. Yeah. It's more fun to talk about things we enjoy as opposed to things that we do not. I like to put more positivity into the universe than the other. I'm a little ambivalent about that. I know. But, you know, <laughs> you know I've got you to check me. It's just more fun <laughs> to talk about something that you I enjoyed. Agree. Yes. So we will not be reviewing Robin's number one in the back matter, nor will you find it in this week's top five. Oh, But it did get us to wondering what other Robin stories are out there that we could talk about for this week's podcast. Mm -hmm. And we decided to do a flip-through episode for Robin Year One. So we did. So, MJ, can you please share with our listeners the creators behind Robin Year One? Yes. We have two writers, co-writers Chuck Dixon and Scott Beatty. And then we have two pencilers, Javier Pulido and Marcos Martin. 
We've got inker Robert Campanella, colorist Lee Loffridge, and letterer Sean Connaught. Connaught? Connaught. Connaught, like a donut. (laughs) Now, Robin Year One was originally a prestige format miniseries, four issues, in fact, Mm -hmm. that was published when? 2001. 2001, 20 years ago. Yeah. Now, around the time when Robin Year One was coming out, geez louise, we hadn't had really a definitive Robin origin story for Dick Grayson since, well, he was Robin all the way back when. And it came time to, like, figure that out because we were well into post-crisis territory at this point. Oh, yeah. And presumably Chuck Dixon, who had been writing Robin, Nightwing, and Detective Comics, is probably running out of ideas for stories. (laughs) And who doesn't love a good origin story, especially when it's canonical? Mm Mm-hmm. So that was ostensibly the primary function of Robin Year One, to reorient readers as to who this Dick Grayson character is supposed to be. Mm -hmm. Which is funny because you can bookend this really well with Nightwing Year One, which was originally published in 2005 and went through Nightwing issues 101 through 106. Also co-written by Scott Betty and Chuck Dixon. Also, they co-wrote Batgirl Year One. So these cats really liked working together, Mm -hmm. it seems. Yeah. But Dick Grayson was pretty well established, or at least defined, in the DC Universe in post-crisis, largely because of these books. Mm -hmm. Which is interesting to me, because Robin is such an ill-defined character post-Flashpoint. Yeah. Like, in the New 52, they try to zip up continuity, make it tighter. Like, things have only been happening for five years, that kind of thing. But if that's the case, how did Batman go through so many Robins in such a short period of time? They're like, it doesn't matter, he did it anyway. They were only Robins for like six months-ish each, maybe? Yeah, that doesn't add up. No. <laughs> Lacks a lot of dramatic oomph as well. Definitely. It certainly doesn't make a whole lot of sense for Dick Grayson, who went through a huge emotional character arc to become Nightwing in the first place, mm-hmm. in actual continuity as it happened in the New Teen Titans. Yeah. But that's all gone in the New 52. <laughs> I don't know why they did it that way. And right now, we don't really have a definitive Robin origin story beyond this one, but this is kind of not continuity anymore. I mean, we might be getting that in that new Robin and Batman mini that Lemire and Gwen are doing. Well, that brings me exactly to that. Mm -hmm. Robin and Batman is, by default, the new Dick Grayson origin story. And there were definitely similarities to be gleaned from that first issue and from this Robin Year One. Absolutely. Robin and Batman takes place around the first year of Dick Grayson losing his parents and becoming Mm -hmm. Bruce Wayne's ward and then becoming Robin. He's like days away from becoming Robin Mm -hmm. in the first issue. Whereas this, he's been Robin for a while. Robin year one begins in a really good place for both Dick and Batman. They're getting along. Alfred keeps talking about how he hears laughter coming from the Batcave. Mm -hmm. Like they're chummy. Yeah. One thing that I find that's really fascinating about Robin and Batman and Robin year one is how different Bruce Wayne is in both stories. Yeah. And Robin and Batman... Batman is a strict disciplinarian. He's scruffy, too, like he is in All-Star Batman and Robin the Boy Wonder. Mm-hmm. But the less said about that, the better. Yeah. But in Robin Year One, this is clean-shaven Bruce Wayne, high society functions and shit. And, and being he's like, smiling. And smiling and being encouraging and supportive of Dick Grayson and his needs. Yeah. I mean, the first panel close-up that we see of Batman, he's got this smiley little smirk on his face. It's really wild to see Bruce Wayne behave this way, because yeah. by the end of this story, that original dichotomy, the dynamic duo the smiling cape crusaders that is not what we get at the end of the story yeah there are boundaries there are rules and there are consequences if you break those rules and batman gets really tight about them as he should Mm -hmm. because at the end of the day the big premise behind the story is to raise the question should batman even be a father let alone be in charge of a child's life yeah the ethical implications of bringing a little kid out with you to be a vigilante (laughs) and they do explore that in this very thoroughly 
Robin Year One is a long story. It's only four issues, but these are oversized prestige format mm-hmm. issues. So there's plenty of space to explore the consequences of having a kid running around in a bright colored costume. Mm-hmm. So in the first instance of Batman and Robin being Batman and Robin in the story, it's just like this low stakes robbery. And they go in and knock it out with little to no problem. Mm-hmm. And then they go back to the Batcave and Robin's juggling batarangs and everyone's getting along and it's really cool. Then we find out how this story is going to be framed. It's going to be framed by the perspective of Alfred, who can only sit by and watch this relationship develop until it finally falls apart. Yeah, the narration is his journal entries. That's right. Can we take a minute and discuss the lettering here? Sure. The lettering really bothers me in this issue. I'm sorry. And the big problem, it's not just the layouts of the word balloons, because those are a nightmare to read too sometimes, because they are not close together when they need to be, especially when the balloons are treed into dialogue exchanges. Mm -hmm. You don't know who's saying what when. It's really frustrating and disorienting. But the letter choices that Sean Conant uses for Alfred is like this weird cursive, the spiky cursive that is barely legible, at least to my fucking old ass eyes. (laughs) Like, it was really hard for me to read. How did you take it? I mean, I thought it was okay. I didn't find it any more or less difficult than what is typically used as like journal-ish captions. It's it's cursive. It always takes a little bit of extra squinting. You're always far more generous with your criticisms than I am, MJ. (laughs) So as Robin year one goes on, we find out that Dick had insisted on going to public schools instead of private schools like Bruce Wayne wanted. Mm -hmm. And he says, I want to be a part of the regular folk. I don't want to feel like I'm any different. He also mentions girls. Yes. Public schools have better looking girls, apparently. Well, I think also some of the private schools Bruce might have wanted to send him to might have been all boys' all schools, boys, boarding yeah. schools, etc. That's right. But also, this whole book doesn't really treat girls super great, as one can probably guess by the era in which it was written. Right, right. Uh, For instance, the big plot of issue number one is that young girls are being kidnapped so that they can be trafficked to a generalissimo from another country who's in America for diplomatic reasons, like Bruce Wayne's got something set up with him. But also while he's in town, he's going to avail himself of the Gotham City black market and have young girls funneled to whatever ends. It's not explicit in the story, but you can use your imagination if you must to discern what this general type guy has in mind for these young girls. And he's getting these girls uh, via Mad Hatter. That's right. Which means via mind control. That's right. Which makes it much, much more creepy. No, it gets more creepier than that, MJ, because while they're being mind controlled, he changes their clothes to look like Alice from Wonderland. Oh, yeah. And he dyes all their hair. Yeah. I don't imagine those are wigs. I think they are on some of them. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. He's still dressing up girls when they're catatonic. Yeah, no, it's hella creepy. It's really, really creepy. But that's the kind of stuff you got back in the day. They went for that edge. I mean, sometimes. Not all the time. Sometimes. I'm surprised it's in the Robin story. Me too. It definitely goes a lot darker a lot more often than I had remembered it going. Yes, this is a very dark story. Surprisingly so. I think another thing that I'm noticing when I'm reading Robin and Batman, or at least the first issue of it, is that it's trying to be dark, but it's trying to be thematically dark. It's not trying to put dark things into its story. Because DC's, you know, they're kinder, they're softer these days than they used to be. It's a little more all-ages friendly, you know? Right, they're not going to go there. I miss that element, not necessarily to this extent, at least in terms of having young girls being robbed of their agency and then, you know, whatever. But there are other parts in here that we'll get to that I liked, even though I was shocked by them, that you will certainly not see in superhero stories today. See, I wouldn't have minded it so much if we would have seen girls who actually did have some agency or girls showing up at all. Like, for instance, one of the girls that gets kidnapped and turns Dick Grayson onto the case is it's a girl named, I think her name is Jessica. 
and Jenny, maybe? Jenny, something like yeah. that. And Dick thought she was cute, and she thought he was cute, and the, then they it, got little mutual crushes. It's yeah, cute. yeah, it's cool. Yeah, and then she disappears. I thought that maybe. Just for the sake of cleaning things up by the end of the issue, having Jenny become self-aware and, like, help the girls escape. And then, like, her and Robin, Dick as Robin, have Mm -hmm. a moment. And she doesn't know he's Dick Grayson, Mm -hmm. but he knows who she is. Mm -hmm. So it'd be, like, this little cute moment for them to reconcile in some way, but that doesn't happen. No, of course it doesn't. So Batman and Robin are getting along pretty well. Captain Gordon is very much aware that Batman, this crazy vigilante that he still hasn't made up his mind about, now has a child that he's working with. And Gordon, who we find out has a daughter. Well, well he says it's his his brother's, his late yeah. brother's girl. So here we're going by the old established idea of Babs isn't Jim Gordon's daughter. He's her adopted daughter, but it's still related by blood because she's his niece. That's right. Yeah. So he doesn't like this one bit. In <laughs> fact, Gordon makes it pretty clear by the end of this issue that if anything were to happen to Dick... He would hold Batman personally responsible and come after him for mm-hmm. it. Yeah. I like this version of Gordon. Very proactive. Well, I mean, that seems like the only thing a law enforcement officer could do. It's like you're endangering a child. <laughs> so like we said, Bruce Wayne is out doing philanthropist stuff mm-hmm. a lot of the time during this part of the story. And he does go out to a yacht where the general is <laughs> one night when Robin's really hot on the case. And he goes out to put a stop to all this mayhem and nonsense on his own, mm-hmm. despite the fact that Batman told him not to, despite the fact that Alfred told him not to, he was like, these girls are in danger, I can do something about it, so I'm going to do that. Well, Batman don't like that one bit. In fact, we got this little panel here with Bruce Wayne, who, by the way, Javier Polito draws a good Bruce Wayne. Oh, yeah. He's, he gives him the widow's peak, I like that. And those heavy eyebrows? That's how Bruce Wayne ought to look. <laughs> Should have a heavy brow. Yeah. You know, guys with heavy brows are weird. Yeah. So, no. He's saying that because he has a heavy brow yeah, listener. Just leave me alone. Just leave me alone. He goes, we'll talk about this at home, Robin, that I don't know because I'm in a tuxedo and people are around. But anyway, so he goes back to the Batcave and Alfred's like, I told you, you probably shouldn't be doing this right now. Dick Grayson should have a chance to grow up a little bit. Maybe mm-hmm. do this in a couple of years, but not right now. And Bruce Wayne's like, how does it feel to be right, Alfred? And Alfred says something pithy and British. And we move on to the end of the first issue into the second one. Now... Throughout this entire story, one character above all looms very large in Robin's origin story. That character is Two-Face. That's right. Two-Face has got a lot of pots and a lot of fires at this point in the story. Batman and Robin eventually are going to get wise to it. Mm -hmm. Having Robin be a part of Batman's life is hitting the papers. People are starting to talk about how Batman's got a partner now. Mm -hmm. And they're making headlines, like the Clue Master got arrested. (laughs) An Asian crime syndicate gets smashed, like all this other stuff. And who's clipping these headlines and taping them up in his creepy little hideout but Two-Face? And his goons are like, yeah, this there's a kid out there. Everyone's talking about it. Mm-hmm. And so Harvey Dent, who feels very betrayed by Batman from years ago. By the way, in chronology, Robin Year One takes place after the events of Batman Dark Victory, which itself is a sequel to Batman The Long Halloween, Mm -hmm. which is now the canonical introduction of Two-Face to the Batman mythos. Okay. Yeah. Also, The Long Halloween takes place right after Batman Year One. You understand. Yeah, yeah. yeah. One of the reasons, maybe, that Two-Face is so intrigued by the entry of Robin into this whole story is that he is, of course, obsessed with duality. That's right. And they are the dynamic duo. But also, it reveals that Batman has a heart after all. He's not just this grim, dark knight. He might actually have something else to him. So yes, again, Mm -hmm. to that duality, it speaks to Harvey Dent. So he starts to set a plot in motion where Batman and Robin can't ignore it. They have to come after him. Yeah. Really interesting thing here. 
The next time we see Robin out with Batman, they take down Blockbuster, the first version of Blockbuster anyway, who ended up becoming a big-time Dick Grayson villain yeah. in the Nightwing series. which I'm sure was on purpose. Yeah. Later on in here, we're also introduced to another Nightwing villain, uh, just the very young version of him. This very, We'll talk about him when we get to him. Yeah, in issue four. Yeah. Dick Grayson does have a date with Jenny. Yep. They almost have a smooch, but yep. then wouldn't you know it, the bat signal goes off. Because Two-Face is at it again! And that is the last time we see Jenny. <laughs> yeah, that's it. Uh, they go to Gordon, and they're like, what's up? And Gordon's like, never mind, what's up? What's up with the boy? It's time we had a little chat about this, Robin. So Batman and Gordon do have that heart-to-heart. And Batman hears Gordon. Like, mm-hmm. he understands. He's starting to hear Alfred a little bit, too. And Batman hates being wrong. <laughs> he hates being wrong, but in this instance, he's probably not right. He may not be all the way wrong, because Dick Grayson is very formidable at this age. Yeah. Like, he's showing that he can take people down. He took down Blockbuster, for crying out loud. But Batman's like, all right, I'm going to take down Harvey on my own. Like, this is going to be personal. And it's going to get ugly. I'm, I'm ordering you to go home. But Robin, doing as well as he did against Blockbuster and Mad Hatter and all that other stuff, he's getting a little too overconfident. He is, though formidable, still a kid. That's right. <laughs> so Harvey Dent kidnaps, or has his goons kidnap, the judge who was presiding over the case of Boss Moroni, the case that turned Harvey Dent into Two-Face. Mm-hmm. I found it interesting that this book spells Moroni M-O-R-O-N-I. I think that might have been an accident. Well, there are other Batman comics that have spelled it that way, but then there are also lots of other ones that have spelled it M-A-R-O-N-I. I think that's the way you're supposed to spell it. Well, yeah, that's yeah. like the Italian way to spell it. <laughs> it's just, I, I thought it was funny because, you know, you could extrapolate that they're saying that Moroni is a moron. Yeah, yeah. okay, sure. I'm sure Harvey Dent would feel that way. Well, yes, of course he would. He might be a little more bitter and have uglier words for that man, but, you know, sure, that's fine. Yeah. In this instance, we do get a lot of depth for Harvey Dent. Harvey Dent never really got a really good origin story. In fact, I think the best origin story we still have is from a Batman annual that Max Allen Collins wrote. Oh. Which isn't very good. If it weren't for The Long Halloween, which did a lot of Two-Face work, we probably still wouldn't have a definitive Two-Face take. Yeah, I mean, we wouldn't have the movie The Dark Knight either. Yeah. Heck. It's funny to think about, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. So in this instance, we do get some real pathos from Harvey Dent, who's, you know, cross-examining the judge and torturing him while he's doing it. But we find out the reasons why he does the things that he does. It's not as cut and dry as it may seem. Mm -hmm. Two-Face is out for blood in this book, by the way. Like, he's killing people. Sometimes he's not even bothering with the coin. Again, a very brutal comic, this. At one point, he draws Batman by standing out in the open on a rooftop with a baby. And decides to throw the baby over the ledge. It's two babies, remember? It's two babies, that's right. And so <laughs> so they go and catch it. Batman gets knocked out when he catches his baby. But Robin dives after the other baby, and it's a dummy. And it blows knockout gas at him. So Batman and Robin are now captured. Mm-hmm. Here's what's so twisted about Harvey Dent. He decides to punish Batman, but in a very indirect way. Because he sets up a gallows and puts the judge and Batman in hoods and nooses Mm -hmm. and leaves it up to robin as to who gets killed first that's a really fucked up thing to put on a kid's shoulders and he he wins the first toss but then he's like best two out of three and he thinks that harvey's gonna play fair that if he wins the second one he's gonna be able to save the other no so robin calls it the clean side goes up the judge doesn't hang and the clean side does come up so he goes sure he won't hang but he pulls the lever anyway and the trap door drops and underneath the gallows is a tank of water Mm mm-hmm so he may not hang, but he's still going to drown. There's a double edge to Two-Face's traps. Yeah, and that's just Robin's naivete. Like, it's, you know, part of why he's not, not necessarily ready to be out on the street with Batman is that he's, he doesn't understand 
He doesn't understand the depths of evil that right. a lot of these villains will go to. Two-Face is about to show him. Mm-hmm. So while Batman is still tied up and really groggy, Two-Face removes his hood and says, you get to watch this. And Harvey Dent says to Robin, he says, your pal killed Harvey Dent and you killed Judge Watkins. Judge Watkins is his mm-hmm. name. And now I'm going to kill both of you, a two for one, but you're first. And the bat will watch. And sure enough, Batman has to watch Two-Face beat a child, Robin. With a baseball bat. With a baseball bat within an inch of his life. And there's one moment where it gets so intense that we just watch Batman's reaction, which is very effective because, again, Javier Polito is very good at facial expressions. The look on Batman's face, it's torment, it's despair, it's helplessness, it's everything you don't commonly associate with Batman, and it's all right there, plain as day. And that page, the lettering's all right because the SFX in bright red, thump, thump, whoomp, are very good. Yeah. (laughs) So Batman uses some acid from his utility belt and he breaks free just before Harvey Dent puts the coup de grace on Robin with the baseball bat and he punishes Harvey Dent for his folly and then brings Robin back to the Batcave. A very small broken Robin. Right. At the moment when Two-Face struck, Batman was doubting himself. He was doubting what he was doing with Dick Grayson. That doubt left him unfocused and because he was unfocused, Two-Face got the better of him and left Robin at his mercy. It's really twisted. It's so well written, but it is really shocking. Which brings us to the third issue. Harvey Dent's all busted up in the GCPD playing mind games with Gordon, and Gordon's not having it. Gordon is, however, having a cigarette. <laughs> Which earlier in the comic, he has said that he has given up the cigarettes because bad for his heart. He's moved on to using a pipe. That's right. Meanwhile, because Bruce Wayne's not about to bring a child, a battered child, into an emergency room, <laughs> he goes and sees poor Dr. Leslie Tompkins... But this is after he already had Alfred try to do his best to take care of him. Wasn't right. enough. Took her to Dr. Tompkins. Dr. Tompkins does what she can. Meanwhile, Batman heads out to answer Gordon's call because Harvey Dent told Batman quite a tale about the night's proceedings, he, especially what happened to Robin. He did. He said uh, Robin's dead. <laughs> Gordon goes up to the roof with the baseball bat that the, has blood on it. The bloody baseball bat. Yes. And he asks Batman, he goes, where's the kid? And Batman says, I benched him. It was too dangerous, and Gordon grabs the bat and points it right at him and says, you're wrong. Don't fucking lie to me. He doesn't say that, Mm -hmm. but that's what's in his heart in that moment. He's like, what did I tell you about all of this? And Batman's like, I know, I know. Quick sidebar. What's really interesting about this, this book did not exist when the Prodigal storyline dropped. The Prodigal storyline was a story that took place after the Nightfall saga when Bruce Wayne came back from having his back broke. Prodigal was like Batman going, I'm not quite ready for this yet. Dick Grayson, will you please be Batman for me for a very short period of time? During that story, Two-Face shows up and Dick Grayson has to take him on. And we find out that when he was still Robin, Two-Face fucked him up a little bit. Mm -hmm. And they address that in the Prodigal storyline. Well, it gets fleshed out in this story. Yeah. But this was years after the fact. Chuck Dixon was playing the long game. (laughs) Prodigal storyline is really good. Yeah. 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 The Grant Morrison... Dick Grayson Batman stuff is really great, and it's my favorite, but Prodigal is right there. Well, I mean, back then, Dick Grayson still had his little ponytail, right? He did. How did he get it in the cowl? How did he tuck <laughs> it in? Did it get sweaty? Well, I mean, he was going to be sweaty in the cowl, but it must have gotten real sweaty. What with that ponytail and all. Anyway, getting back into it. So Gordon's like, don't lie to me. And Batman's like, I'm not lying. I'm not lying to you. I promise. Robin's retired. You'll never see him again. I give you my word. And Gordon's like, well, yeah, that used to mean something. Ouch. Ouch. (laughs) So Dick Grayson's having nightmares. 
So he has a crazy nightmare recap of what's been happening in the <laughs> miniseries over the last couple of issues. And then Bruce Wayne wakes him up and he says, Dick, this is a great moment where it's like black. Dick opens his eyes. He sees Bruce and then he starts screaming, no. He's saying no because of his trauma. But I like to think that there's there's something in there psychologically that says that he's saying no to Batman as well. Mm. Because as we know, this moment is what changes the relationship between Dick Grayson and Batman forever. There will be no more laughing in the Batcave after this. And this will create a rot that exists between Bruce Wayne and Dick Grayson until Bruce and Dick finally break up or go their separate ways, however you want to put it. Grow up, I would say more. When Dick Grayson grows up and moves on to become his own man. Really awesome stuff in this book. The character work in here is amazing. I don't love it as much as you, but I, I can agree with that, at least. It's really good stuff. And Bruce Wayne's like, you're done. We're not doing this no more. You're finished. And then he runs off into the night, as Batman is wont to do. And Dick Grayson's sitting there with his busted up wing. And he looks out to the night sky and sees the bat signal and asks Alfred, what am I going to do now? Robin with a broken wing. What am I supposed to do? I don't know if it's broken. Because he, he jumps back into action pretty quickly. Jared, it's the, but it's a it's like the next turn page. of phrase. Yeah, I understand. Robin with a broken wing. I thing. understand what you're doing there. See, there's poetry in here, MJ. <laughs> I was doing the poetry. It's poetic. <laughs> well, I mean, it's in the text. It's right here. So anyway, Dick Grayson is not happy about this new turn of events. He realizes he fouled up, but he also knows that it's not his fault. But this is the situation you have when you have a kid being a vigilante. And he still wants to be out there doing good because he went through the same thing Bruce did as a little kid. Kind of. There's a difference there, and Alfred points out that difference. The murder of parents. Right. And Dick wants to continue to try and right society's wrongs in the way that Batman does. But the interesting thing here, and they point this out in the story, is that Bruce Wayne didn't just dive right into becoming a vigilante. He spent his childhood training. He was very driven, and he eschewed a childhood and happiness to trained to be a vigilante, to be the marauder that can right wrongs and stuff like that. But he didn't start being Batman until he was in his 20s. Dick Grayson is a child. Like, he's on the low end of teenager right now. He's 14, 15. He's a kid. Yeah. And he's jumping right into this a year after his parents died. In the first issue, Alfred says, quote, For I fear that I am once more watching a child barter his youth away in the service of justice, end quote. And justice was said derisively. Yes, of course. Alfred's not wrong. No. Poor Alfred. He put up with a lot, didn't he? Yeah, just has to be, kind of be silent sentinel to all of this ugh, going on. And then for his troubles, he got his neck broken by a maniac in a luchador mask. We don't talk about that. It's interesting that DC's keeping with that, don't you think? I mean, there is something to be said for the illusion of change, and that is at least change, but did it have to be change like that? I mean, that's Tom King for you, MJ. Coming back to the story, there's a new supervillain in town, MJ, and it's Mr. Freeze. Which, interestingly, they misspell his real last name. Yeah. Did you notice I that? I noticed that, too. Yeah. The lettering, MJ. I think the letterer goes by what's written in the script, though. I think Chuck Dixon knows how to spell Mr. Freeze. Maybe, maybe not. Maybe Scott Beatty doesn't. Mm. <laughs> now, I don't all the way remember what was up with Mr. Freeze or what his whole plan was. Do you remember? Yes, he was going to steal all of the donated blood in Gotham to ransom it yeah yeah ransom it off because that was that was the one thing that was supposedly worth more than money was all all of the blood it's just your standard fair nut job plot (laughs) but it does give a reason for robin to happen upon the start of this heist because he's at the hospital so dick realizes he's got to do something he writes bruce wayne a note he does 
You know, he's very polite that way. That's how he was brought up. You wrote notes at the circus, MJ. <laughs> so Alfred gets home and finds the note first before Bruce Wayne does, and he's reading it on his own. He dropped the groceries all over the place. It's very sad. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, back at the GCPD, Harvey Dent springs an early release. So he does. Violently, MJ. Yeah. Yeah, it's bad. This is a very mean Harvey Dent. It is. He's very mean in this one. He's not like that usually. I mean, he can be cruel, but it's usually predicated on the flip of a coin. Maybe he chills out later and this is like early mean, mean Harvey Dent? Well, speaking of chilling out, we go back to Mr. Freeze. Dick Grayson (laughs) goes in and thwarts his plans, which, you know... It's a whatever bit, but it establishes that Dick Grayson is going to continue this line of work with or without Batman. Mm -hmm. And he draws the attention of a man named Shrike. Now, before we go any further, MJ, and start discussing the Junior League of Assassins. The League of Baby Assassins. The League of Baby Assassins. Throughout the entire story, there's been this mob boss who's been in jail for a long time. He was working for Harvey Dent for a while and ended up getting jailed, and Dent wouldn't spring him. Mm -hmm. And he's really bitter about it. Mm -hmm. In that bitterness, he hires the League of Assassins from jail to murder Harvey Dent. Mm -hmm. So the League of Assassins are in Gotham. They're here to kill Harvey Dent. But while they're in town, casing the joint, I guess, they notice this young boy who's been doing all this awesome stuff. He's really agile. He can take care of himself in a fight. Why not? Let's make him a junior assassin. Well, the Shrike dude is training all of these kids to be assassins. What does he call it? Something Academy? Junior League of Assassins works for me, MJ. I like Baby Assassins. Baby baby Assassins? League of Baby Assassins. Yeah. Also, really quick, while Dick Grayson's running around Gotham by himself, we see a Haley Circus poster. Yeah. And it's got Dead Man. Oh, I didn't even notice that. That's Boston Brand right there. It is. Didn't Boston Brand die as an acrobat? Yes, maybe that's like an old poster, or this is supposed to be before that happened. So, does Haley Circus have like a curse or a hex on it where <laughs> acrobats just get fucking killed when maybe. they're entertaining the nice people? Jesus Christ. Anyway, I'm sure somebody's going to point out the in-canon reason why Boston Brand's on the Haley Circus poster, but mm. I don't care. It's just really funny to think about. Maybe he was guesting with their with their circus. That's right. So, it brings us to issue number four, where Shrike meets up with this gangster, and he's like, you gotta put the kibosh in Harvey Dent, I'm paying you for it. And he's like, that's fine, but you don't get to tell me what to do. I'm Shrike. <laughs> I have a goatee, and you will respect the goatee. You, you may tell me what to do, but you will pay me a lot for it. <laughs> right. So, for some reason, Batman decides to go to Arkham and ask the Joker where Two-Face is yeah it's like a real throwaway moment that's supposed to kind of tie into what the joker ultimately does to jason todd because joker knows everything that happened it's in the papers Mm -hmm. and he's got the paper and he's laughing about it and batman's like yeah it's not very funny where's two-face he's like i don't know where two-face is and i probably wouldn't tell you if i knew ha 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 i'm the joker i'm crazy the joker says should i do my mark hamill impersonation for this sure i'm not gonna even try it When you do catch all double trouble, remind him of something, will you? I call first dibs. (laughs) I can't do Mark Hamill. That sequence is really, really well drawn. Yeah. It's it's very funny visually because we see Joker about to hit Batman with a chair and we find out on the next page that he actually unbolted it from the floor. Mm -hmm. And it's a lovely little sequence. It's funny because Batman hasn't turned his back. He knows the Joker's coming up on him with the chair. So he's saying to the attendants in front of him, he goes, the Joker unbolted his chair. You need to take away his chair privileges. And then it's just a really cute scene. It doesn't really serve a lot of purpose, but it's there. Also, this is a good time to point out that this fourth issue is the one that had Marcos Martin 
joining in for the the pencils. And I can't really tell who did what when. They do have a very similar style. And they do. since it's colored by the same person, like it flows in and out really well. It does. It does get a little choppy towards the end, though. Because in the first part of this issue, Dick Grayson is going by Freddy. And he's in with the Baby League of Assassins. And Shrike tests them. And there's this awesome silent sequence where the Baby Assassins infiltrate the Spring Museum. Mm -hmm. And it's a test by Shrike just to see if they can pull it off to work as a team, that kind Mm -hmm. of thing. But the visual language of this silent sequence is beautiful. Everything's drawn impeccably. Everything flows. It's expert comics. And then later we get action sequences that are drawn like stick figures and whatnot. It's not that bad, but it's almost that bad. Maybe that's why they had to bring in uh, Mr. Martin. Could have been. But how beautiful are these pages? They're gorgeous. The infiltration scene is just top marks all around. This is some awesome comics right here. So Shrek's like, well done. You guys saw yourselves in under the cover of night now. Pulls the fire alarm. See yourselves out. Mm -hmm. (laughs) We also are introduced to another kid who is Dick Grayson's age named Boone. Yeah. Who's sort of the leader of their little group. Yeah. But... A lot of times, Dick is kind of making the more intelligent decisions, right. so Boone is kind of going with what Dick is saying. But he's also kind of jealous of Dick. Yeah. Doesn't like the attention put on, well, Freddie, anyway. Yes. Right. The name Freddie Lloyd that Dick is going by is pulled from his parents' names. Lloyd was his mom's maiden name, and Frederick, I think, was his dad's first name. So, Two Faces hold up at 2020 Doubleday Avenue, or Boulevard, or wherever rich people live. Mm-hmm. There's a mansion there, and they have kidnapped the owners, the people that live there. Taking them hostage. Right. They've yeah. got them tied up at a dinner table, and Two Faces just being a fucking nut job, as per usual. While this is going on, Shrike and the Junior League of Assassins convene on the grounds of the mansion and call attention to the attack dogs. Because they failed to stop these kids, or failed to do anything as far as Two-Face is concerned, he kills the dogs. That makes three dead dogs in this comic. Right. Great. Well, you know, Two-Face is evil. I know, but I just don't like to see it. You know that kind of stuff happens. That doesn't mean I want to see it. That's fine. I mean, it's not fine. (laughs) You understand. So while this is going on, Freddy, Dick, is like kind of on the fence about whether or not he's actually going to see this through, if he's actually going to kill... Two-Face, because he kind of owes him one. He was saying earlier in this book, he's like, I'll do it. I'll do it. Like, like seeming like this real hard ass. Right. Well, he gets the drop on Harvey. They have a little tiff. And then Dick Grayson gets the upper hand and gets the gun, gets Two-Face's gun, and gets the drop on him. But the panel where he does have the drop on him and he's got the gun pointed at him, the way that panel is drawn, like the background is all red, whereas the rest of the page is all in these like blue cool tones this one background solid red and the look in drawn in dick grayson's eyes while he's pointing the gun is just like his eyes are welling up with tears he's terrified yeah at the moment he's here this is going to change his life this is a crossroads he's at and he knows it what does he do next he walks away he drops the gun he leaves harvey dent to himself the cops come in the junior league of assassins scatter dick grayson returns to the back cave to write one more farewell note to Bruce. Alfred busts him. Meanwhile, that mobster that hired the League of Assassins mm-hmm. to kill Harvey Dent, they show up in prison and stab him in the back of the head <laughs> just to make sure that he doesn't have some grief further down the road because they didn't fulfill their contract. Yeah, so I guess if, if you hire the League of Assassins and they don't do their job, they kill you? Yeah, I guess. I mean, it's a nice, clean way to get out of a contract, MJ. It's true. Or maybe that's only what happens with the Baby League of Assassins. Yeah. It looks like they're watching Carlos Frankenstein at this moment. Oh, yeah. That's that's what I got from it, too. Yeah. 
So Dick returns to Shrike, and Shrike's like, we went through your things, by the way, Freddy. You're not <laughs> Freddy. We know who you are. Well, we don't know who you are, but we know you're not Freddy, and yeah. that's the point. Meanwhile, Two-Face is out and about, and he's trying to find Shrike. He's like, he tried to kill me? I'll kill him. Mm-hmm. In this one instance, he flips the coin. Somebody made to inform on Shrike, and the coin lands standing up, which does happen. Oh, this is when this is when he's in the strip club, right? Yes. Hamana Hamana is the name of that strip club. Like I said... This book uh, doesn't like ladies a lot. They're in the background. It's not gratuitous. No, I'm just saying that that's, that's there how... There are strip clubs in Gotham? I'm not saying there are. There aren't. I'm just saying that the way that this comic decides to depict women and how to kind of keep them in the background mm-hmm. is noticeable. Well, it'd be interesting to see how you feel about it when we finally get around to reading Batgirl Year One. Oh. By the same creative team. That's an interesting idea, Jared. That's an interesting idea. There is a Batgirls comic debuting soon. True. Truth. Truth is coming out of your mouth. (laughs) So we return back to Shrike and Dick Grayson trying to figure things out already in progress. Batman shows up and says, he's my partner. He trucks with me. All this time, Dick Grayson's been running around on his own. Batman has no idea where he's been. Also, Batman doesn't really bother to go looking for him either, we notice throughout the story. Yeah, yeah. Again, raising the question, should Batman even have a child in his care? The answer is obviously no. Dick Grayson had to grow up real fast in order to survive this life, yep. we find out. But Batman's like, he's with me. Don't fuck with him. And Trike's like, I'll, I'm the leader of the League of Assassins. I'll do whatever I want. They go into a scrape. League of Baby Assassins. League of Baby Assassins. <laughs> wonder if that's on his resume. So anyway, they get into this big old fight, and it's the mess, and he's got like these like, sharp knife hands. He cuts Batman up good and proper. He gets one in his gut. Yeah. And so Batman's bleeding and he's wounded. And then Two-Face shows up because he got the information he needed. He starts shooting everybody. But Dick Grayson puts a stop to that. Harvey Dent manages to get away. But Batman's like, another time. We'll get him another time. Meanwhile, Shrike accidentally in the skirmish fell on his blade. Very anticlimactic. But the point of the story is not what is up with Shrike and what is up with Harvey Dent necessarily. The point is, what is to become of this dynamic duo? But Shrike does matter, Jared, because he shows up later in Nightwing's life as mm. an adversary, but it is Boone oh. who is Shrike. The child rival of Dick Grayson. Yeah. He also shows up in, like, Suicide Squad and stuff, like a bunch mm. of random DC crossovers later on. Of course. Yeah. But yeah, it is Boone who is Shrike from here on out. How do you like that, MJ? I like it, okay. I like continuity that fits snugly. Yeah. It's like a warm blanket. Well, I mean, Shrike has since been, like, you know. Yeah, I know killed and, and ignored for all time so the point is is that robin and batman is telling a robin origin story at a time when dc doesn't give a shit about continuity at all so i don't know where it fits or even how it's supposed to fit does anything matter anymore i guess not it will fit in itself as being a good story because lemire and true. gwen are very good storytellers it's true but i'm just saying that robin year one fits snugly into the chronology of the Batman lore post-crisis. But and it's I an, like that. But it's an old chronology that, like you're saying, is kind of ignored. And I would rather have a really well-done story that I can enjoy outside of continuity. And I, I think, would say this is that. Well, I think that Lemire and Dustin Gwen are going to give me that in Robin and Batman. So getting back to the story, MJ, to wrap this up, the day is one to a degree. Mm-hmm. Shrike is dead, Two-Face is on the run, and running scared, I might add. Bruce Wayne and Dick Grayson return to the Batcave. Batman's getting patched up by Robin. And Dick drags out the costume, and he holds it up in front of his mentor, and he says, Do you really want me to be Robin again? And Batman says, Yes, but with conditions, not like before. I want you to be a good soldier. And Dick Grayson 
asks what I would fucking ask. What the fuck does that mean? <laughs> Being a good soldier. And they Not- use the word soldier in Robin and Batman, too. And, of course, Frank Miller. Oh, my God, did he use the word soldier in All-Star, but whatever. You used the F word, though, and nobody, nobody used the F word there. <laughs> and Batman says, you once swore an oath to me. If you put that costume on, you'll honor those words to the letter and never again question my orders. <laughs> And Dick Grayson says, even if that means watching you die, and one of the best lines of the book, Batman says as a response, yes, without hesitation. What are you laughing about? You. Leave me alone. You and your Batman voice pointing at me as you're saying it. Trying not to do the Bale voice anymore, because it's like 10 to 15 years old at this point. It's time to retire the Christian Bale Batman voice, I think. I, I disagree. Oh. I think it's a good Batman voice. Well, I'm working on a new Batman voice. I'm enjoying the new avenues of my batman voiceitude. yeah you're gonna have an r pat's batman voice i don't know what robert pattinson's gonna sound like i mean we have instances where he's talking in the trailer but i don't know if that's his batman voice i'm not gonna know his batman voice until i'm sitting in the theater watching the batman probably true so anyway we're getting off track again <laughs> wrapping it up batman and robin pay a visit to gordon and spell everything out for him and say look robin and batman are now a package deal and you're just gonna have to deal with it and jim gordon says it's good to have you back son he says, thanks, Captain Gordon. You take care of yourself out there, okay? And Dick Grayson's like, I will. I promise. And then who wanders onto the roof of the GCPD at this very delicate moment where a police captain is having a conversation with a vigilante, politically very perilous, but his daughter. Yep. Barbara Gordon makes her first appearance in the whole book. Yep. Yep, there she is. And she spots Robin. Robin spots her. And they have a little mode of eye contact, of course. That's right. And Gordon walks her back out and then turns around to Robin and says, not in your life, boy wonder. So ridiculous. So ridiculous. It's awesome because Dick and Barbara are destined to be together. Well, yes, but I I don't need that overprotective dad BS. Dads are overprotective. Yeah, but when it's about a daughter, it's, it gets kind of annoying. Okay, I'm sorry. I'm sorry the one moment of Gordon and Babs didn't meet your criteria of a good father-daughter moment. It didn't, okay? It didn't. Well, I didn't realize we were going to explore their entire relationship in the two panels that are on the page together. Oh, it's, it's not about their relationship. It's about how this comic writes women and uh-huh. opinions on women All and right, stuff. yes, I understand. Yes. Yes. So Alfred Pennyworth wraps up the story with one final diary entry. And it's some of the best lines in the entire book. Please read them. I can't read this lettering. It's a nightmare. (laughs) How am I going to read this? I'll try it. I'll try it. Quote, I am in the service of lost boys struggling to be good men. And while the cave beneath the manor no longer echoes with the same laughter I once knew, I believe that master and pupil have made an uneasy peace. The knight and his squire return from the darkness as they do each night, united in their cause. And as morning comes, I find it time once more to end my chronicles while my boys sleep the sleep of the just. End quote. Now do it in a British accent. I cannot. (laughs) And that's Robin Year One. What a story. Like I said throughout this conversation, it's so nice to read a story that fits so snugly in continuity. That is not my only criteria for a good story, however. I like character development. I like stakes. And boy, does this story have stakes. It really sets up what it means to have a Robin in Batman's life and what could possibly go wrong. And boy, does it go wrong. This is like the worst case scenario of the Batman-Robin relationship. And see, I think that's what I maybe don't like as much about this story. Like, I agree with you that it's structured very well. It's written very well. I just, 
it's just unnecessary roughness for me. If I <laughs> if I want want to read a story that's focusing on Robin and his first year being Robin, I kind of want to see that more sunny positive side of things that we got in like the first issue where Alfred's talking about how he he's happy to see Bruce Wayne smiling again and all that shit. But there's no story if they're all happy go lucky all the time. You can have a story and sure. not and not have a bunch of Dogs getting shot and Robin getting beat almost to death with a baseball bat. And- well, we can't evaluate a story that doesn't exist. We can only evaluate the story that we have read. True. And based on the strengths of that story, I think Robin Year One is probably one of the better Dick Grayson stories that we've got. Well, I'm glad you enjoyed it that much. It is very good. So, MJ, like we do at the end of most of our read-throughs, we provide a score. MJ, how would you rate this on a scale of 1 to 10? I think I would give it a 7.5. Wow. And a lot of that is on the strength of Javier Pulido's art because it's beautiful. What about the strength of the story? And like I said, it was fine. It's just not my thing. Wow. <laughs> wow. The art was beautiful and 7.5 is my score. What is your score? This is a 9.5 for me. The art gets really wonky towards the end there and it really kind of blunts the uh, dramatic impact just a little bit. And that bugs me a bit. I am not as put off by the violence in the story as you are. I feel that every once in a while, because, I mean, we've had years of DC softening its edges to the point where now it's just like this fluffy IP farm, and I don't enjoy the stories that they tell for the most part these days. So it's nice to have a story with a little bit of roughness to it, a little bit of jagged edges. It's nice to feel something when I'm reading a Batman comic. But that's just so weird, because way earlier in the in the news section, you were talking about how you hate how, oh, Jeff Johns would have done this if he was writing this Mary Jeff Marvel Jeff Johns book. writes with the bluntness of a brick through a fucking window, okay? <laughs> this is handled with a little more grace... It does go to a very dark place, but fittingly, it happens at the center of the story. It doesn't compound the violence as it goes along. It illustrates the darkest point that Robin and Batman could possibly get to without going all the way, hello, death in the family. And instead shows the consequences of their actions and the consequences of staying the course. They know how bad it can get, and yet they stay together until they don't. And I think that's the strength of the story, is that it bothers to go there, but it shows us the aftermath as well. It shows us how it affects Dick Grayson. It shows us how it affects Bruce Wayne. And it shows us how it affects their relationship. So 9.5 out of me, 7.5 out of you. All right. What did you guys think of Robin Year One? Have you read it? Are you going to read it based on our rambling (laughs) read-through? Let us know. Info at doomrocket.com. We'd love to hear from you. But in the meantime, MJ, I do believe it is time for the top five. So it is. All right. Let's do it. Alright, MJ, this week you've got the three picks, I've got the two picks. Mm-hmm. How do you want to start this week's top five? I want to start off with sort of the end of kind of a story arc, sort of. Okay. We've got Nice House on the Lake number six this week, ah. which is the start of a five-month hiatus on the book. It's true. Which is very sad, but it is coming back, so that we can at least be happy for that. And we have a trade paperback of this coming out in January. I think mm-hmm. so if you missed out on any of the earlier issues i've had a lot of customers asking like hey do you have issue two or three of nice house on the lake and it's like no <laughs> no and you're gonna have a hard time finding them please pick up the trade paperback if you missed any or pick up issue six if you are you know caught up this is written of course by james tynan art by alvaro martinez bueno colors by jordi belair and letters by and World design nice house on the lake number six it's so good 
What's your first pick of the week, Jones? First pick is the debut from Vault Comics. I'm talking about Radio Apocalypse number one. This is written by Ram V with art by Anand R.K. Colors by Anisha Shankar and letters by Aditya Bidikar. Radio Apocalypse tells a story of people living in a far-flung future where everything's irradiated and it sucks. It's like the cursed earth and Judge Dredd. But what unites them all is a radio broadcast of somebody spinning the hits. I think Bruce Springsteen gets some play in this issue. I believe I'm on fire is the track mentioned. Yeah, that's the one. That's the one. Vividly rendered. A gorgeous book to look at. Radio Apocalypse number one is out this week. Check it out with my compliments. MJ, what's next for you? My next pick is an anniversary issue. Now, this is Fantastic Four Anniversary Tribute number one. This does a similar thing that they did with Captain America like last year, where they take Fantastic Four number one and annual number three and have modern artists redraw a page each. So it's more of an experiment than it is a comic book. Yeah, Yeah. but it's awesome because it's so cool to see modern artists reinterpret this old, awesome Kirby art. Indeed. Uh, Some of the artists involved are... Please do not name them all. Okay. (laughs) Uh, But we've got Adam Hughes, Luciano Vecchio, Steve Epting, Walt Simonson, Aaron Cutter, Rod Reyes, Neil Adams, Cafu, Pepe Larraz. I'm just hopping around here because there are so many awesome names. Kate Nemchek, David Lapham, Tom Riley, Leonard Kirk. I could go on. It's super fun. It's a little expensive at $6.99, but to me, it's worth it. I love this kind of thing. It's an anniversary issue. It's the 60th anniversary of the Fantastic Four. Little, it is. little. Yeah. What's your next pick, Jared? My next pick is a fourth issue in a miniseries from Boom Studios. I'm talking about Eat the Rich, number four. This book has warmed its way into my heart, MJ. I'm enjoying it quite a bit. Story of the haves and the have-nots and how the haves eat the have-nots, <laughs> but it's like a mutually agreed destruction kind of thing. Okay. It's really twisted, and I like it. It's written by Sarah Gailey with art by Pius Bach, colors by Ramon Titov, and letters by Cardinal Ray. I'm really anxious to see how this sticks the landing, or if it will, because this has the makings of being either a great story or just a good one with a really bad ending. <laughs> we'll find out, but in the meantime, I'm enjoying the ride. Eat the Rich number four is out this week from Boom. MJ, close us out. What's the last pick for this week's top five? Well, I feel like we had to mention this this week. Superman, Son of Kal-El number five is my last pick of the week. Mm-hmm. We see Superman's son, Jonathan, smooch his new boyfriend. It's important to note that he's not just Superman's son. He is now the Superman of Earth. Superman's son of Superman. That's right. Anyway, he's smooching his new journalist love interest in the grand tradition of his dad. Yeah. It's super cute. Uh, it's historic. You know, it's exciting. Written by Tom Taylor, art by John Timms, colors by Hi-Fi, letters by Dave Sharp. That's my last pick of the week. And that closes out this week's top five most anticipated issues of the week. Every week we field a question from one of you, our listeners. Hit us up, info at doomrocket.com, Casuals Podcast on Twitter. This week, Beth, via info at doomrocket.com, asks, Hi, MJ. Hi, Jared. What's your favorite MCU movie, and what's your least favorite? Wow, what a softball. What a softball question, Beth. Thanks a lot. Although, honestly, the more that I thought about it, the more I was like... It's not an easy question. Yeah! We just got done watching quite a few Marvel movies that we haven't had an opportunity to talk about on this podcast. That's true. Shang-Chi, Eternals. We did not give them episodes because we were far too damn busy. And I don't think either of them are going to reach either worst or best pinnacles for us. No, definitely middle of the road, both entries. But in the spirit of the question, and in the spirit of the moment that we're living in, where we just got done seeing the second Spider-Man No Way Home trailer, and I'm just so done with Marvel. (laughs) I'm just so fucking wiped out by it. I just don't care anymore. 
Like emotionally, I'm not invested in any of it. It's just not cinema. Well, I'm not going to go that far. Um, but I will say that the story for me did end with Endgame. You feel differently about it. I mean, I don't love them. They're not changing my life. But I enjoy them. None of them were Dune. Right. But but Eternals oh, what could be Dune. But it, but Eternals did have Barry Keen in that black leather jacket and the sunglasses, mm. kind of cosplaying '80s Neil Gaiman, and I, I truly appreciated that. I like how you worked that into the podcast, MJ. You've been itching to talk about that for some time. <laughs> That's all I wanted to talk about as far as Eternals went. Right. It's Barry Keen. That's pretty funny. <laughs> but Beth asked us, MJ, our favorites and least favorites. Yes. Now, in order to do this, we have to acknowledge that. While they are cinema, Marvel movies are Marvel movies. They tell a story in a very specific way. Yes. And some storytellers manage this formula more successfully than others. Joss Whedon did nail the formula with the Avengers. Well, he kind of helped create it, what yeah. did you say? Yeah, in a very large and profound way that still has ramifications to this day. Everyone's joking now. Everyone's got jokes, MJ. And not just in the Marvel movies, just like superhero movies in general, mm. action movies in general. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Joss Whedon definitely left his mark. For sure. And while The Avengers was my number one movie of all time, as far as Marvel movies were concerned, for a very long time, in fact, it has been supplanted a couple of times in my estimation. This is my chance to plug my Letterboxd account, (laughs) where I spend more time curating my lists and writing reviews for movies than I do hanging out on Twitter these days. So if you haven't seen me on Twitter, that's why. But I have a Marvel Cinematic Universe ranked list, so this makes... (laughs) Answering Beth's question so much easier. So before I do my picks, MJ, I'm more interested to hear from you. What's your favorite MCU movie? See, this is very hard for me to pick a like one because I like a lot of the Marvel movies, but mm-hmm. I also love a lot of the Marvel movies. But you also love movies. Like I, I can help you navigate this. Let's think about The Dark Knight, which is not fair to compare any movie, any superhero movie to The Dark Knight. It's the best one there is, bar none. But, but it's also not a superhero movie. It's a Michael Mann movie. The Dark Knight is undoubtedly one of your favorite movies. What Marvel movie at least makes a reach for The Dark Knight, in your estimation? In that case, I would say Captain America, The Winter Soldier. Wow, all right. Um, But I still wouldn't call that one necessarily my favorite, because something that's my favorite isn't necessarily the best, because I'm I'm not the kind of person who's going to say, I like this thing, and that makes it the best. I know, answering these kind of questions is tricky because of that. Yeah, yeah. I just, I, I don't like to say that because, yeah. So which one makes you feel the most squasho? Well, I'm thinking back, I think it was around when Infinity War came out. There was like an online quiz kind of a thing where you could rank the Marvel movies by picking which one you would rather watch over the other. Which would you rather watch? Right. Incidentally, that's how I rank my Marvel movies. Yeah. But anyway, if I recall correctly, it was either Black Panther or Thor Ragnarok that ended up being scored the highest. It might have even been a tie. I don't remember, but it was definitely those two. But what was the one that you picked over the other, MJ? I guess, I don't know. Like Black Panther, I would say, is the better film. But Thor Ragnarok, I love Thor. I love Thor so much. And I, I really, know you do. really, really like Thor Ragnarok a lot. You're going way out of your way to not answer this question, MJ. I guess, <laughs> I guess my answer to the question is Thor Ragnarok. Gotcha. But it's also tied with Black Panther and Captain America Winter Soldier, okay? You already said it. Thor Ragnarok's your favorite movie. Now, what's your least favorite movie, MJ? See, that is also hard to say because there are so many of the Marvel movies that just make me mad for various weird, stupid reasons. Uh And then there are other ones that, like, I know watching their badly made, badly structured films, but I might still enjoy watching them for whatever stupid reasons. Like Eternals. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Hey, I don't think it was that badly structured. It's pretty bad. Be quiet. Um... (laughs) (laughs) But I would say my least favorite one is probably, because of those make-me-mad reasons, 
is probably Age of Ultron. Gotcha. Yeah, that movie's a mess. And also just all of the stuff with Black Widow, the relationship between her and Hulk, her calling herself a monster because she can't have babies. Right. There's so much of that movie that makes me mad. And then it just like, it's such a slog. Yeah, because they're trying to set up all the future phases of the Marvel Universe. Yeah. They forgot that they're telling an Ultron story. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> so much wasted potential in that movie. Yeah. But again, like all that setup does pay off in the end. So you kind of look can look back on it fondly, yeah. sort of. But it's still as, no good. as a movie, it's not a great movie. There are great moments in it, too. Right. Like when Ultron and Vision have their final conversation in the woods. Yeah. And Ultron calls Vision naive and he says, well, I was born yesterday. That's mwah. The great part party sequence at the beginning that kind of is highlighted by Steve almost kind of moving the hammer. Right. Which, which pays off in Endgame. Yes. See, that's what Marvel Phase 4 needs to be doing right now. They need to be setting up stuff that they can pay off later. In a way, I guess they kind of are, but they're still very much married to the first three phases of the MCU. But if they do start setting things up, they should not set things up the way that most of Age of Ultron is structured to just be nothing but shit thrown at the wall to see like, yeah, you might see how this sticks later. Point taken. Now, Jared, we come to you. You already know all of these. You're not going to have to hem and haw about it. No, what's I, your What's your favorite MCU movie? I stand by my convictions, MJ. You know me. I, I know which one this is. I already. know Hedge. Yeah. No hedging from Jones. Mm-hmm. But my favorite Marvel movie right now, because it does change with the times when I age and get older and look back on things more fondly. I recall you hating Iron Man 3 when you first saw it, and now you quite like it. I enjoy it quite a bit. In fact, I like all the Iron Man movies, even Iron Man 2. It's my Oy. least favorite of the three, but I still like it. I dislike it for the same reasons that we both dislike Age of Ultron. It's trying to do too much setup work that it forgets to tell a story. And it just gets to be a slog yeah. at certain points. Yeah, absolutely. But my favorite MCU movie right now, without a doubt, is Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2. I'm a fucking basket case when it comes to stories about fathers and sons. Psychologically, I don't know what that says about me, but it's it's a thing. I get all choked up watching movies where complicated men are trying to raise boys and failing disastrously. It's like reading Robin Year One, MJ. It affects me. It's also why you love the MCU Spider-Man movies, because of the father-son relationship between Tony Stark and Spider-Man, right? Are you joking? Yes, I am. Oh my god. (laughs) No. Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2. It's the better of the Guardians movies. I really love Guardians 1. I think it's almost perfect movie, let alone being a perfect Marvel movie. But I think there's something about James Gunn. When you let him run amok and tell the story that he wants to tell, you get something that transcends formula. Because Gunn is very much married to the formula because he has to. Marvel pays his bills. But he did something with Guardians Volume 2 that you just don't see very much. Black Panther got there also, but Black Panther also came out after Guardians Volume 2. Both movies are emotionally resonant. And both movies have thematic elements to them that speak to the characters and speak to the story that they're trying to tell and also are light years better than virtually every other Marvel movie that exists. But I give Guardians the edge because of the father-son dynamic. Kurt Russell also is one of my favorite actors, period. And seeing him in a Marvel movie is perfect. And getting to see him de-aged with his fluffy 70s hair. Mm -hmm. Oh my God, my heart swoons. But I think it's funny that you're talking about how much you love the Guardians movies when you were just talking about how you think the jokiness that Whedon planted in the MCU, how jokey those movies are. And yet, they're, you're saying that they're some of your faves. Well, with Guardians, I think there was a better balance between jokes and gravitas. They're still going to undercut a heavy moment with a joke. That's just going to happen in all Marvel movies. Black Panther handles this very well. In fact, Ryan Coogler did a very solid job of avoiding the pratfalls after a dramatic moment. Not so much in the first half of the movie with the South Korean excursion, which is just there to put stuff in the trailer, but... There's good fighty stuff in that part. Yeah. 
and the final bit of it with the rhinos and whatever, that's a mess. But everything in between is like almost a perfect movie unto itself. But those jokes, they don't ruin the effect of what Guardians has. Not only does it close, it closes strong. It commits. It says, we're going to kill a character off and it's going to be permanent. We're not going to fucking Nick Fury this shit. And it's going to speak thematically to what this movie means to the characters. It's not like it was an Avenger. <laughs> yeah, but it's Michael Rooker. And I've got an affinity for Michael Rooker, too, having watched movies beyond Marvel movies. Uh-huh, uh-huh. You know? and He wasn't just Henry the Serial Killer, you know. He's been in a ton of other movies. Yes, I know. He may have been your father, boy, but he wasn't your daddy. But I he's mean, also fucking Mary Poppins. Christ. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, that's a great line. <laughs> it's a great line. So what? It's if a it's... joke. It's a joke, Jerry. You hate those. Oh come on, you're you're misinterpreting what I say. <laughs> so yeah, Guardians Volume Two is definitely my favorite movie, but my least favorite MJ. And this came out right after Endgame. This is setting a tone here, and it did. I found out Spider-Man: Far From Home is my least favorite Spider-Man movie. I actively, aggressively dislike Amazing Spider-Man 2, but I would watch that in a fucking New York minute before I ever watch Far From Home again. I'm not even revisiting it to watch No Way Home. In fact, I'm going into No Way Home just to passively watch it, and if it dazzles me, then I'll be excited, but I I don't think it's going to. The Spider-Man movies represent everything that's wrong with the Marvel formula, everything that's so nakedly transparent about the structure of Disney and how it accumulates IP and the billion dollars that it can make. Like, it aims to make a billion dollars. I wish everybody could see Jared right now. He's so mad. I'm so mad. (laughs) And how they twisted Spider-Man, a character that can make a billion dollars, no problem. I just don't understand how they warped Spider-Man and the Peter Parker story into, like, this easily digestible piece of fluff. When Spider-Man's got some darkness to his story, we know the tale of Ben Parker and how Spider-Man came to be. They eschew all of it. Well... Because he has Tony Stark instead to be his daddy figure. It's a deliberate move to incorporate Robert Downey Jr. into their Sony co-produced movie. It's a naked attempt to make nice-nice with Sony because they're the ones that technically still have the film rights to Spider-Man. See, this is what I'm talking about. When you talk about Spider-Man movies now, you have to talk about the business behind it instead of talking about the art itself. I hate that stuff. But also, I recall when the first... MCU Spider-Man movie came out, everybody was actually kind of happy that they didn't go over his origin again and regurgitate Ben Parker's death and all that stuff, but they might have ignored it a little too much at this point. Well, I mean, with two movies out, we haven't talked about it once. In fact, the only allusion to Ben Parker we get is the briefcase he uses in this movie, and he gets a name drop in the What If episode that Spider-Man shows up in. And I think May says something like your uncle, like really briefly. Yeah. Yeah. More than anything else, the Spider-Man movies are comedies. They're not really superhero movies. And they're really weird comedies, like Tim and Eric almost. And I know why, because John Watts was like a YouTuber before he became a film director. And he made a bunch of short films under the banner Waverly Films. And I loved them. When I found out that John Watts was doing Spider-Man, I was like, oh, that could be fun and weird. I didn't realize how weird it was going to get. And not in a good way either. But I think it's just kind of more Gen Z's sense of humor kind of weird. Like, it's aimed at kids. Then I weep for the future, MJ, because this shit's not funny. And more importantly, it doesn't have a heart. None of these movies really have a heart to them. They do some lip service towards heart. A lot of them are rather shallow. But there's nothing resonant about that. And that just kills me because this is Spider-Man in the MCU. Everything we ever wanted is finally here. And it's just this boring, tepid nonsense. They are still at least earnest. I appreciate that. Mm. Well, anyway. Hey, Beth, we answered your questions. <laughs> we have a tendency to ramble, but we got there. 
Do you have a question for Casual Wednesdays? Do you like to have us bicker over? <laughs> <laughs> Hit us up. That's info at doomrocket.com. Casuals podcast on Twitter. MJ, holy crap. What? That Spider-Man movie's coming out really, really soon. Yeah. We've got Jamie Foxx coming back mm-hmm. as Electro. We've mm-hmm. got we've got Willem Dafoe coming back as Green least, Goblin. At least his voice. <laughs> Alfred Molina, who desperately needed a paycheck, apparently, coming back as Doc Ock, only to be mocked, mocked by children. <laughs> it just fucking kills me. But anyway, also we're getting Reese Ephens as the lizard, or That's at least right. the lizard's coming back. We don't know if Reese Ephens is playing him, but we'll find out. And I presume Michael Keaton's coming back. Everyone's right? like, who's going to be the sixth member of the Sinister Six? I'm like, did we forget about the Vulture? It's going to be him, right? I, I could I could only assume. Or Scorpion. Yeah, because they set up Scorpion 2 in uh, Homecoming. But one thing I've come to understand about these movies, they don't pay attention to anything because they don't gotta. But we also are forgetting one Mr. Venom. Oh, my God. <laughs> oh, why would you bring that up? <laughs> Ew. <laughs> That's it. That's all the time we have for this week's Casual Wednesdays. All new episodes can be found on any good podcatcher, but if you need more of the sweepy little podcast in your life, you can check out our episode archive via doomrocket.com. Rate, follow, subscribe, whatever you want to do, or tell us how we're doing with a review on Apple Podcasts. Pretty please. And while you're at it, look us up on Twitter at Cashweds Podcast. I'm at Jared Jones underscore MJ. Where can they find you? At Molly Jane underscore K. Until the inevitable day that we finally see Tom Holland's tiny little British head get tongued up by Venom. <laughs> I remain Jared. That's MJ over there from all of us here at DoomRocket.com. Have a great new comic book day. I guess it is a small mercy. It could have been carnage. 